Bibles or you've got some sort of device that has the Word of God on it, I would invite you now to turn with me or or flip with me or swipe with me or whatever that looks like to Luke chapter 10 as we join in today. We're going to be picking up on the second half of the message we kind of started out with last week uh, as we talked about this one who came to Jesus with this most important question, this question we should all be asking And we're going to pick up and and focus more specifically on the parable that Jesus gives in light of what this one has come to ask him today. But let me just start by telling you that on Friday, Amy and our daughter Ellie and our youngest son, Caleb, and I, we all had the treat of visiting with one of our eldest members who was, uh, at least for the entire 22-year history of this church, up until just a few weeks ago, she's been making this 50-minute or so drive to New Vision from Winston-Salem. And though she is now a widow in her 90s, Miss Christine Grubbs is as sharp as a tack. Many of you know that because you've had plenty of opportunities to interact with her. And we really enjoyed the chance to visit with her, my family and I, my family minus Micah. He was down on a, on a field trip. But Chris has had some severe swelling and pain in her knees that has really gotten unbearable over these last few months. And in spite of the efforts of several doctors, uh, she now finds herself alternating between weeping and praying as she's dealing with this great pain that makes it a chore for her just to walk down the hall. And sweet Miss Christine needs our prayer. She needs our acts of love. So I want to encourage you all to be praying for her, be reaching out to her to see if there are ways that we can love on her. Uh, To make matters worse, she was rear-ended a couple of weeks ago, turning into her road, and this accident totaled her only car, leaving her with no personal vehicle or transportation. So Amy and I are concerned about Chris being so far away from this area because this area is where her church family is. This area is where all of her biological family is. So we were asking her in the midst of the conversation as we're there with her visiting on Friday how she now gets about getting along without being able to walk out to get her paper or to drive herself to the grocery store. And we learned that a a couple of our ladies... Uh, Miss Polly Wigington and Miss Linda Baker were going to be coming by that next day on Saturday to bring her some groceries and, and to help her out with some tasks around the house. And so I just want to say thank you, ladies, for doing what we're called to do together as a part of this body. I know there are probably others of you who are doing the exact same thing. She just happened to mention you two. And, and I want to commend folks who are doing that sort of work, that sort of work, looking after our widows, looking after those who are in need within our flock. But once, once she had mentioned that, then Christine started to tell us about her neighbors. Now, some of her neighbors across the way have apparently been bringing her newspaper in and have been coming by just to check and see how she's doing. Another neighbor that she barely knows up the road came by and cleared away the snow from her driveway just a few months ago when this heavy snow fell. Her neighbors next door include a woman who is always doing things for her without accepting payment for any of it, she told us. Then there's the woman's son who actually came home from his college 
the other day to take her to a doctor's appointment and to round up groceries with her. But Christine said that she had not had much interaction with the father of that family next door until one day not too long ago when he showed up to clean out her gutters and to repair a bad spot that was on her roof. And as she profusely thanked him and said that what he had done had been such a great deed for her and asked, you know, what she had done to earn such a great act of kindness, this man smiled and gave her the simplest of explanations of why he would go to such great lengths to care for an elderly widow next door. He said to her, we're neighbors. And that's a powerful connection, my friends. There's something deep within us that causes us to know that even when we barely know one another, we ought to love our neighbors. And I don't know how things are in your neighborhood, but when Jesus summarized the great commandment of God's law in Matthew 22, 34 through 40, he said this, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, Jesus commands us to love our neighbors. And he says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. These two commandments are both found in the Old Testament law of Moses. The first five books of the Bible is what we would refer to as the law of Moses. And the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. The command to love your neighbor as yourself is found in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And those two commandments also showed up last week when we read in Luke chapter 10 about a lawyer who arose to ask Jesus this question about what he must do to inherit eternal life. And last Sunday, we talked about how important that question is and how we ought to devote ourselves to finding the answer to that question, which ultimately relies not on our doing and in our own ability to justify ourselves as this lawyer was striving to do, but on trusting in the one who has met the law's obligations on our behalf and welcomes us into God's family to enjoy his inheritance by faith. We saw that on display as Jesus pointed this lawyer to the word of God. And he summarized, this man summarized the two commandments of God totally. Loving your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus told this man, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will inherit eternal life. Unfortunately, as we talked about last Sunday, this lawyer missed the whole point. He didn't realize that he could not do this. He could not love God with this all-out, all-consuming sort of love that the law required. And so he sought to justify himself by asking a follow-up question. And who is my neighbor? I think we'd all agree that it's good to have neighbors to love you. And it's good to love your neighbors. But if we're honest, I think a lot of us want to put some boundaries around what that command of God 
requires for us and what we are to do as we love our neighbors as ourselves. Because if the truth be told, we really, really, really love ourselves. And if God's calling for us to love our neighbors like ourselves, that means we're going to have to really, really, really love our neighbors. I mean, we're going to make sure that our personal needs are met. We're going to make sure that our personal nutritional needs and our personal housing needs and our personal transportation needs and our personal medical needs are taken care of because we really love ourselves. And we acknowledge that we should help some of the individuals with at least some of these same things. But we want to be able to draw a line somewhere. We're like the lawyer. We want a nice, clean definition of who our neighbor is that will allow us to feel good about taking care of those who are closest to us without overtaxing ourselves to meet the needs of those whom we barely know. But today we're going to see that Jesus simply will not allow us to hold such a limited understanding of who our neighbor is and therefore who we ought to love with the same degree of love that we love ourselves. So let's join together now in the reading of God's word in Luke chapter 10 and we'll pick up with a bit of review as we start from verse 25 just to catch the context of last week and work our way into this well-known parable of the Good Samaritan, starting in verse 30. So would you stand with me now, if you're able, so that we might honor the reading of God's Word as we begin in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. By way of review, and a lawyer stood up and put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Enter the parable of the Good Samaritan. Here's our new material for today. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn. And took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Here ends the reading of God's word. 
you may be seated. And so I have titled today's message, A Good Neighbor's Compassion, because that's ultimately what we see so richly on display here in this passage, this parable of the Good Samaritan, which begins here in Luke 10, verse 30, is one of the best-known passages in the Bible. On any given day, you may turn to any given news outlet. Maybe you open your newspaper, or maybe you go online, or maybe you go to, to the local television station. On any given day, you might read or you might hear one or two headlines about whom, someone who is described as being a good Samaritan. That's a phrase we use often. We use that phrase to describe someone who goes above and beyond to help meet the needs of a neighbor who is in need. And that phrase finds its origin here in this parable of Jesus, of course. We use that phrase, and we, and we use that phrase in a positive sort of light. When Jesus presents the unlikely hero of this parable to the inquiring lawyer, he also commands that lawyer to go and do the same. Go and do what this Samaritan has done in what I've told you in verse 37 Jesus says and as he does this Jesus is ultimately issuing a command not just for this man but for each and every one of us he's commanding all of us to be a good neighbor he's commanding all of us to be good Samaritans but this passage falls in that context that begins with a lawyer who wants to know how to inherit eternal life And so this parable has some implications that go beyond just how to be a good neighbor. They go into the realm of how to inherit eternal life. And this parable has discussions, has has implications for that discussion as well. So I'm going to try to tie all of that together today. As I compel those of you who have gathered here on this morning to be a good neighbor by knowing a good neighbor. That's the summary of what this passage calls for each of us to do. Be a good neighbor by knowing a greater neighbor. So let's begin by considering how to be a good neighbor. We can learn a great deal about how we can be a good neighbor by looking at the example of this one who emerges as a good neighbor out of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. It is the Samaritan, the one who came close, the one who showed compassion, the one who gave generously to the one who had been left half dead that's the one who's presented in this passage as the one who proved to be a good neighbor it is the samaritans whose example we are called to go and to do ourselves so we can learn a lot from this good samaritan and and what can we learn about him about how to be a good neighbor well i see in this passage four lessons about what a good neighbor does here's the first one A good neighbor steps closer. A good neighbor steps closer. This parable begins with an unnamed man. He's presumably a Jew as he's coming down from Jerusalem, the capital city of the Jews. And this man finds himself in an awful sort of predicament. As the parable begins, Jesus tells us that this man is heading down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, you wouldn't know this without looking at a map, but these two cities are about 17 miles from one another. But there's also a great difference in their elevation because Jerusalem is seated about 2,300 feet above sea level, 
Whereas Jericho is near the Dead Sea, which is the lowest place of elevation on earth. And it is 1,300 feet below sea level. That means that as a man traveled those 17 miles between Jerusalem and Jericho, he would be dropping 3,600 feet in altitude. Now, just to kind of summarize that in a way we North Carolinians can understand, all right? That's pretty close to the difference in elevation between Carolina Beach out on the coast and Blowing Rock up in the mountains. Only the change that we're talking about between Carolina Beach and Blowing Rock happens over a span of 300 miles, whereas here it happens in only 17 miles. And that's a steep 17-mile road that in Jesus' day was a very narrow road that wound through the wilderness, that traveled through these steep cliffs, these hidden caverns, these sharp turns that left the traveler not knowing what would lie ahead around the next turn. This tough road was an ideal hideout, as you might imagine, for thieves and for thugs who would come and ambush travelers. They would steal their money. They would leave them for dead with little likelihood of anyone even noticing and even less likelihood that someone would be able to catch them as they wound through that narrow terrain of, of back roads that they had found out out of the places where they were conducting their crimes. Travel on this road, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho was so bad that in Jesus' day, it had earned the nickname of the Red Way or the Bloody Way because of the cruelty that was so common along its path. So when Jesus told this story of a man falling among robbers on his way down to Jericho, he was telling about the sort of thing that regularly happened along this road. And as I mentioned, this man, as he's going down this dangerous road, he falls among robbers. But those robbers aren't content to just take his things. They're not content just to take his money and his possessions. No, those robbers actually strip him. They steal away his clothes in addition to his belongings, Jesus said. And they beat him. They beat him so terrible that this man endured a beating that ultimately left him half Dead, the text describes. When the other characters in this parable encounter this man, he's barely hanging on to life. He's still breathing, but he isn't moving. He's bloodied and he's bruised and he's unable to move on his own unless someone steps in to help this helpless man soon. This day will be his final day of life. And three individuals pass by this man. But one of them, only one of those three, steps closer to him. First, there's a priest. The priest was a man who obviously knew God's word. It was his job to be the intermediary between God's nation of Israel and the Lord God Almighty. It was his job to carry out the temple sacrifices, which were meant to appease God's wrath upon his people until the one great sacrifice would come later. Surely this man knew God's command for his people to love your neighbor as yourself. But knowing God's command did not impact this man's plans. Maybe he was in a hurry. 
Maybe his family was expecting him. Maybe he was worried about being ceremonially defiled and unable to carry out his priestly duties because he had touched a dead man. No matter what the excuse may have been, the simple truth is that according to verse 31, when he saw this half-dead man, he passed by on the other side. He moved away in order to avoid contact. Likewise, a Levite comes in verse 32. Unlike the priest, we read that he came to the place and saw him. The Levites were servants of the temple. They were responsible for keeping the gate and and handling the singing and tending to the other responsibilities commanded by God's law in the religious services that were held at the temple. They too would have known the law of God thoroughly. This man too would have known his Bible. He would have known God's command to love the poor and the hurting. And for him, there could be no mistake. He had come to the place and he had seen this man. He had studied this man's miserable condition. He surely knew that this man was still alive and in grave need of assistance. But still, the response of this Levite was the same. He passed by on the other side. He moved away from the man who was in need. And you know, some people want to know about other people's problems, but they have no desire to help those problems. They're captivated by the suffering of others in the news and in the community. They read the articles. They tell their family and friends, did you hear about what so-and-so is going through? They train their ears on the sobs of others as they are sitting in the restaurants. They want to stop and look. They're like this Levite. They want to take their neighbor's suffering in, but they have no plans to move to meet the need. And at the end of the day, though they know about their neighbor's plight, their neighbor is no better for the fact that they know what they're going through. And friends, I just want to say, this is why gossip is so dangerous. Gossip can deafen your soul to Christ's commands to love with a love that responds. Don't waste your life simply learning about the perils that other people are facing. Invest your life in moving to meet the needs of those who are hurting. It seems as though the priest... And the Levite, I mean, those who are the champions of the Jewish religion, it seems like they both had the same thought. I've got more important things to do. You know, hopefully someone will come. Hopefully someone will help this poor fellow out. Well, at this point, the lawyer who had asked the question which Jesus was now answering through this parable was expecting a hero to arrive. I mean, when you hear a good storyteller tell a story, it's always the third individual who comes out to be the hero. Think of the three little pigs, right? Pig three's got the bricks. He's the one who's the hero, right? And so this lawyer is now thinking, all right, who's the hero going to be? Who's Jesus, the good storyteller, going to reveal for me as the one who's going to win the day? I mean, we've gone from religious elite and the priest to religious servant and the Levites. Maybe now it's just going to be a lawyer like me who knows the word of God. Maybe it's going to be just a common Jew. Maybe it's going to be one of Jesus' followers. Maybe he's going to explain one of them to be the hero of 
this story? Who's he going to make to be the hero of this story? And this lawyer is shocked when Jesus turns the tables on his self-righteous pride by showing that his enemy is the hero. For in verse 33, Jesus says, but a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him. A Samaritan of all people. You see, the Jews, like the lawyer who was having this dialogue with Jesus, hated Samaritans. The Samaritans were descendants of the northern kingdom of Israel that split apart from the southern kingdom of Judah that they were now part of after Solomon's reign. Their capital city of that northern kingdom was the city of Samaria, hence the word we use now in Samaritans. And they pursued idol worship from very early in their kingdom. And after the fall of their kingdom in 722 to the empire of Assyria, they intermarried with non-Israelites who were planted in that land by the Assyrian king. The Jews despised the Samaritans because of their impure heritage and their misguided worship. The Jews so hated these so-called half-breeds, as they would refer to those who lived up in Samaria, that they would lengthen their journey to travel between Jerusalem and Galilee by going east of the Jordan and then going back up and crossing the Jordan a second time, passing through the area of Perea, just so they could avoid the area of Samaria that lay between them and Jerusalem and Galilee to the north. And the Samaritans, I should say, were not too fond of the Jews either. But this Samaritan was a good neighbor because when he saw his fellow man in need, even though he was a despised enemy, Because of his nationality, he moved toward the man to meet the need. He was not content, as the others were, to pass by on the other side. And so he swallowed his racial prejudice. He refused to say, let his fellow Jews take care of him. He's not one of my people. He saw in this man a fellow human being, a fellow bearer of the image of God. And so he laid his pride in the dust and he loved his neighbor as himself with a love that stepped closer. Because that, my friends, is what God calls for us to do. He moved toward the injured and the suffering because that's what God calls for us to do. And this is important because If we're going to love our neighbors, then we must move toward our neighbors. This doesn't just happen. It isn't just convenient. This was a radically inconvenient experience for this Samaritan, in fact. He's moving towards someone who would despise him if he was conscious and healthy. He's moving towards someone who would probably not return the favor if the shoe was on the other foot. And it's interesting to me to note that the word which is translated neighbor in our English Bibles is derived from a Greek adjective which simply means near or near to or close by. 
Therefore, in the original Greek, the word neighbor literally means one who is near. When the lawyer asked Jesus who his neighbor is, when he asked, who should I love the way that I love myself, Jesus responds that the neighbor is whoever has a need that is near enough for you to be able to make a difference as you travel on life's way. And friends, in this day of highways and interstates and jets and the great American economy that we are celebrating right now, I can't help but think that there are very few desperate needs in this world that are not near enough for us to make a difference. And the implicit lesson here is that a good neighbor is one who steps closer, steps out of the comfort zone, steps to where the need is. And seeks to bring the love of Christ to help meet that need. And that's why, through the Great Commission, I so often compel you to consider why we, as a church, ought to be going to our neighbors, both near and far. Why would we go to the nations and not just minister to those who are here in our backyard? Well, because if, as this parable so clearly illustrates, our neighbors are not simply those who live in the same country as us. Our neighbors are not simply those who are of the same race as us. Our neighbors may, in fact, hate us. But God calls for us to step closer. Because that's the first thing a good neighbor does. Here's the second lesson about what a good neighbor does. A good neighbor shows compassion. Verse 37 says that when the Samaritan saw his fellow man dying by the road, he felt compassion. That word compassion is a word which in the original Greek indicates that he felt an emotion deep in his guts. His heart was torn. But he wasn't content just to feel compassion. He moved on to show compassion. That's why in verse 34 we read that when he, we read that he came to the man and bandaged up his wounds, rendering ancient first aid by pouring oil on his wounds to soothe them. Wine is an antiseptic. Then the Samaritan traded places with this wounded man, putting him on his own beast, such that the man was now forced to walk. The Samaritan now had to walk instead of ride. He showed compassion and got to work to meet the need that had come near to him. He brought this man to the inn and he took care of him. And my friends, we must be careful not to be content to feel compassion without Acting to show compassion. Sometimes our default response is to shoot up a quick prayer for the needs that we see that we can't conveniently meet when the reality may be that we, as God's representatives, are ones who have come come near with a possibility of meeting the need of one who is praying for someone to, to come and help. A proper seated mercy and compassion must drive us into action i heard about a preacher in the day before automobiles who happened across a friend whose horse had just been accidentally killed the crowd of onlookers had gathered around and they were all expressing their words of sympathy oh i'm so sorry that you're having to go through this oh what a tough situation that must be for you to have lost your transportation But none of them were offering practical solutions to help meet the need. So as the crowd chimed on with words of sympathy, the preacher stepped forward and said, I am sorry, $5. How much are you sorry? 
And then he passed his hat around. And he helped his neighbors to give of themselves in a way that would practically help to express their compassion, to show compassion in the light of this need. The Samaritan in this parable, however, lived out the golden rule. He treated his fellow man as he himself would want to be treated. He loved his enemy. There was no common bond between these two men other than the fact that one had a need and the other had an ability to meet that need. That's what brought them together. Compassion was their only bond. And the Samaritan met real physical needs. But the Samaritan didn't go up to the dying man and say, let me give you this gospel tract. Now, if this Samaritan was indeed a follower of Christ, that would certainly be a good thing to do later. But for now, this man was half dead. The loving thing to do was to first bind up this man's wounds and get him to a place where he could recover. Once his physical needs had been met, then maybe there would be an opening to meet his spiritual needs. And there are many worldwide who need acts of compassion. Are we looking for them? Are you moving to help when you encounter a need? A good neighbor doesn't just feel compassion. A good neighbor shows compassion. That's the second lesson about what a good neighbor does. Here's the third. A good neighbor spares no cost. The good Samaritan in this parable gave generously of his time and his effort and his money and his reputation as he went about helping his needy enemy. He probably tore off some of his own garments so that he might bandage this man's wound. He gave up some of his own wealth and enjoyment to pour his own oil and wine on this man's wounds. He gave up his convenience in order that the man might have a ride on his own donkey. We read in verse 35 that the Samaritan took two denarii. That's two days worth of wages we learn elsewhere in the scriptures. Money that he could have used for any number of other things, but he used it to pay for the injured man's room and board. John MacArthur records that those two denarii would have covered somewhere between three weeks and two months of room and board in an inn in that day. This man gave of his time. He spent the night with this wounded man. How do we know that? Well, we read in verse 35 that it was on the next day that this man gave an innkeeper a generous sum. And remember that this Samaritan is in a territory where he is not well received. Yet he tells the innkeeper in verse 35, you take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you. Do you see, my friends, he's just laid down his visa card on the counter. And he said, look, you take care of this man. Whatever extra it costs, you put it on my card. You put it on my tab. That is risky love, my friends. That's a risky thing to do in a place where you are not well received. And yet here is this Samaritan sparing no cost because that's what a good neighbor does. And you know, you and I could easily get overwhelmed and we could spend every red cent we own trying to help the multitude of needs around us. But I don't think Jesus is trying to drive us to despair here. The reality is there are probably real needs that you could be helping to meet without ending up destitute. 
Sometimes when we evangelicals talk about the need for taking the gospel to, our, to the nations or to our neighbors overseas, there are people in our camp who say, I know there's a need over there, but what about the great need that is here? And I just want to tell you that's true. I am not an advocate of neglecting the need here. But my question is, if you are not going to go and to help meet the need of our neighbors there, are you meeting the needs of our neighbors here? Or are you just saying that as an excuse to meet no needs at all? It's not enough to acknowledge that the need is great in both locations. What we need to do is by the power of the Spirit meet the needs of our neighbors who are hurting somewhere. We can't meet the needs of everyone, that's true, but we can serve the one who has the ability to meet every need by going where he sends us and meeting the next need that he plans for us to meet. So here's a practical start for all of us, myself included. Is there one person that you know who is in the midst of a great struggle that you could help? Is there one person who is otherwise your enemy that you could show mercy to and assist through a difficult trial? If there's not one person that you and I can identify to be good Samaritans showing lavish grace and kindness to, then I submit to you that we may be walking on the wrong side of the road. We may be taking the safer road when God has designed for us to take the risky route of showing uncommon grace because a good neighbor spares no cost. That's the third reason or the third lesson about what a good neighbor does. Here's the final one. A good neighbor shames his critics. A good neighbor shames his critics. It's interesting to me that at the end of this parable, Jesus asked the question to the lawyer that he's put this parable together for that we find in verse 36 where he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? When he asks that question, the answer is obvious to us, right? Who was it? The Samaritan. It's obvious, but we're quietly obvious about it. Okay. (laughs) That's right. It's the Samaritan. We know that it's the Samaritan. That's how we identify him because that's how Jesus identifies him when he first appears in this parable. But this lawyer can't even bring himself to say that name. He's so ashamed. How could he vocalize that a Samaritan, a hated half-breed, had out worshiped his fellow Jews so he leaves off the Samaritan tag and says the one who showed mercy toward him that is the Samaritan but the lawyer can't bring himself to announce it as such and Jesus wrecks this lawyer's pride with the final words to go and do the same he says go and live like this hated half-breed neighbor of yours who shows a mercy that you aren't willing to show because of your own self-righteous state. And you know, when we talk about a Samaritan in these days, we use the word to identify good qualities in a person. We use the word to identify those who have a good heart. But when they spoke about a Samaritan in Jesus' day, they were using a word of scorn. What made the difference in how Samaritans 
have been viewed throughout the halls of history. It was the actions of one man. Sure, he was a fictional man on the lips of our Savior, but still the truth is the actions of this one man changed the perceptions of the whole world because this one man was willing to show uncommon love. And so, my friends, let me say to you, We who know Christ as our Savior and Lord must be sure that we are known just as much for what we are for as what we are against. We live in a society that is growing increasingly antagonistic against Christianity and against the Bible. But do you want to heap burning coals on the head of an antagonist of Christ? Show the rich love that this Samaritan showed. Do you want to change the perception of those who've only heard that we're against homosexuality, that we're against pornography, that we're against uh, abortion, which we are rightfully against these social evils because that's what the Bible gives clear testimony we should stand against. But still, do you want to change the perception of of those who only see us for the things that we are against? Well, go and show them what we are for. Show them that we love them because we have been loved with a great love. Go and find your neighbors, even those who despise you, and lavish love on them by stepping closer, showing compassion, and sparing no cost to meet their needs. By so doing, there's a good chance that you will shame your critics. And by so doing, there's a good chance that you will shame the critics of Christ. You see, the lawyer in this passage, sought to limit his neighbors. A true child of God seeks to expand his capacity to love. It would be easy for us to say, let me just love the people next door. Let me love the people I go to church with. Or let me love the people I work with. But Jesus won't let us settle on such a shallow definition of who our neighbor is. Jesus calls us to something greater. Even our enemies are to be loved as our neighbors. Our neighbors, anyone with a need. And you know, there are a million needs around us at any given time. If I'm quite honest, it's overwhelming for me to think about helping with every need. I, in my own strength, I am sure that I am incapable of living up to the example of what this passage calls for at least in my own strength. But praise God, he doesn't limit me to my strength. This leads me to the truth that this lawyer needed to know. And it's a truth that you need to know as well. If you're listening to this message and you're getting the impression, that's a hard thing to do. I can't do that. Well, I just want you to know that you're in good company, my friends. Because every individual who has ever been saved has come to the realization that this is a tough thing to do. In fact, in our own strength, loving our neighbors to this degree with this intensive love is impossible. But we find this. In order to be a good neighbor that God commands, you must know the good Savior who has met the law's demands. We need a good neighbor ourselves. We need a neighbor who has a greater strength than our own. And friends, you should know that Jesus is the greater neighbor that we need. 
And you need to know him. You'll never meet God's demands for eternal life apart from him. You may ask, how can I know a greater neighbor? Well, let me tell you how to know a greater neighbor. First, reject your self-goodness. In this passage, the priest and the Levite and the lawyer all share one common characteristic. They're religious people, but they're relying on their own righteousness. The problem is they're dead and they're trespasses and sins. They're caught up in a lifeless religion. They play church, but they're not affected by church in the way that they live. They say they love God, but they have no love for the people that He loves. And friends, I want you to know this. You can devote yourself to religion by making perpetual sacrifices, and you can still miss the ultimate sacrifice who has come on our behalf. You can perform all the rituals and follow all the rules and still miss the righteous one who has taken our place. You can strive to justify yourself just as this lawyer did and totally miss God's gift of the one who freely justifies us by grace through faith. Prayer without repentance is in vain. Sacrifice without salvation is empty. Knowing the Bible without knowing the hero that it points to has no eternal worth. And it's enlightening to me that two times in Luke's gospel, there are individuals who come to Jesus with the same question that this lawyer has asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This passage and then later we'll encounter the rich young ruler. And Jesus, I've got to say, uses a different evangelism strategy than I would. I mean, if somebody comes to me and asks that question, what must I do to, to inherit eternal life? I want to say, all right, let's bow our heads and you pray after me, okay? But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus points both of these men to the law. He points both of them to that law, which will show them the high standards which God has that they cannot live up to. Because, see, there's a difference here, my friends, in what these men are coming to do. As a matter of fact, we can contrast that with what's happening in Acts chapter 16. As this jailer learns that God has broken the chains on Paul and his traveling partner, and he comes to them in the jail and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I mean, essentially for us, that's the same question, right? How can I inherit eternal life? And what must I do to be saved? Those are for us the same thing. But for the two individuals that Jesus deals with in Luke who come asking this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a different question for them. Because in their minds, they don't need to be saved. In their minds, they can do it on their own. The question for them is, what must I do? How can I earn my own righteousness? And the reality is that they needed to crash upon the shores of the Old Testament law. They needed to realize that they could not, in their own power, by their own ability, earn this thing that God so richly provides for us. And so, when we read that passage in Acts chapter 16, as that jailer comes and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Here's the real answer. Here's the real answer that the people who are dealing with Jesus asking this question were not ready to ask because they were not ready to find a Savior. They didn't think there was anything they needed to be saved from. But what Paul responds and says is, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You see that? I mean, if we're in the mindset that we don't need to be saved... 
then there is no hope that we will reach out and grab God's rope, which he has cast into our drowning existence. Because if we don't think we need to be saved, we're going to keep trying to fight the waves on our own. We're going to keep trying to earn our own way out of this thing. But that's a futile pursuit, my friends. So I want to say this to you. If for you, inheriting eternal life means anything other than being saved, then you've missed the point. This man wasn't ready for the sinner's prayer. There is no sinner's prayer for one who thinks that he is not a sinner. If you want to know a great neighbor, then you need to reject your self-goodness, but also you must reach for the Savior's grace. Friends, Jesus and his rescue mission for us are written all over the actions of this good Samaritan. I mean, Jesus is so rich in this passage. Jesus is our good neighbor who has come to us despised and rejected and esteemed not in order to meet our greatest need. He found us mortally wounded by sin. Men could not help us. Religion could not help us. We could not help ourselves. Our goodness had fallen short of God's law. We needed a savior. And God sent a Savior who was his only son. He stepped closer to us through the incarnation. He showed compassion toward us and that while we were yet sinners, he came to bear our sorrows and to be acquainted with our griefs. He spared no cost for us. Even his own life he willingly gave in our place. The just for the unjust. And the blood that he shed is the wine. It cleanses our wounds. The spirit that he has sent is the oil that gives comfort to us. He has seated us on his own property as joint heirs and adopted sons and daughters. And my friends, he is coming again to redeem those who are his own from their debts fully and finally. Friends, Jesus is the greater neighbor that we need. If you strive to love your neighbor up to God's standards, apart from him, you are destined for failure. Reach for the Savior's grace. Cry out for his mercy. Receive his rescue line. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And then you'll be ready to love your neighbors with the true love that, the, that is the love which you've ultimately found in Christ. Because when you come to know a greater neighbor you'll know that the third thing he enables you to do is to rely on the Spirit's guidance. The Word of God says in Romans 8, 4, the requirements of the law, the requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, we are only able to love our neighbors because we've found the love of a greater neighbor. And so I conclude with one final reminder. Be a good neighbor by knowing a greater neighbor. And as we close in these final moments, I want us to have a time of invitation, a time of reflection, to consider each one of us ourselves. Have you come to that point in your life? Have you come to that point in your own journey? Well, you've realized that you cannot meet God's demands by your own power, by your own strength. Have you come to the point where, for you, seeking eternal life is more than just checking off the boxes and doing all the right things and making all the right people happy? Have you come to the point where you said, help me, Lord Jesus, I need to be saved? Because anything short of that, my friends, 
will not lead you to eternal life. And Christ has come richly in love, freely through grace, to offer himself up that you might be rescued, that you might be saved, that you might be forgiven, that you might receive eternal life. And so if you've never crashed upon the shores which say, I need the rescue line, my friends, I want to invite you today. Come to the Lord Jesus. Offer a prayer to him that says, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. I can't do this on my own. Save me, Lord Jesus. Your death is enough to pay the penalty of my sins. Your life from the resurrection is a promise of my own. God, save me. Place me in Christ. And he, my friends, will be glad to do that very thing. That is his heart, is to save those who would reach out to him in faith. Or maybe you're here and you're like me and you come across this passage and you see this extreme example of love and you realize, I'm not living that out. I'm not showing this level of compassion, this level of grace in the lives of others enemies or friends, whomever. And you just want to take an opportunity in a final moment here to come and to pray and to say, Lord, I'm not getting this right, but you guide me. You direct me. You help me, oh Lord, to to find the one that I can shower this grace on. If that would be the Lord's desire to work through your heart and your life today, you would be an encouragement to others just by coming in the final moments that we'll share here in just a little bit and, and offering a prayer to say, God, direct me in this pursuit of being a good neighbor. But let's close with a final word of prayer before we share in our invitation. Father, what a high standard of love. What a high standard to think that your word would call for us to to sacrifice so greatly. I mean, to move in a direction of one who is in need, even when that one may be an enemy. To show compassion in a way that doesn't just say, I'm sorry for what you're going through, but I'm going to commit myself to help you in what you're going through. To, to, to show that there is no gift which we would not be willing to render in order to meet our neighbor's need. God, this is a high, high, high calling that is intimidating for me, and I know it's intimidating for so many of us who are gathered here. But Lord, in our intimidation... We sometimes wonder from faith. We sometimes wonder from the truth that we will never, never, never give to the extent that would outgive what you've granted to us. Father, your grace is so rich for us. And so, Father, let us come to you by faith. Let us love our neighbors lavishly because we have received lavish love from one who has all power and all authority and whose resources will never be exhausted. Father, Increase our trust in you that we might pursue you in these things. And Lord, if there is one here who's like this rich young ruler who's maybe been considering, I think I've got this thing on my own, but who through the power of your word has realized today that they need to take a crash upon the shores of your law, that Father, I pray you give courage for them to proceed and to say, I want to trust in Jesus. I want to be saved. And Father, you make all the difference that only you can make as we share in these final moments. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.